Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's another 10 Things discussion with Lindsay Chervinsky and Clay Jenkinson. And this week, they discuss Abigail Adams. First week, we did Alexander Hamilton. We'll move on to Lafayette and George Washington and others. But we picked 10 things that you might not know about this historical figure, but that do open a window on their character and achievement. And I can't think of anybody that I would rather discuss those 10 things than with Lindsay Chervinsky. Especially 10 things about Abigail Adams. And there were some pretty interesting things about Abigail Adams. Abigail Adams is one of the most extraordinary women in American history, and her letters are some of the best reading we possibly have, wonderfully characterized by Dr. Chervinsky. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, sir. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to talk to you today about women. You wrote famously that we are all equal, but somehow women, along with other groups, got left out of that equation. Do you want to comment on that, sir? Yes. From a 21st century point of view, I think you can find fault with the way we did things and the way I saw things. But if if I explain myself, I hope that you will take a more generous view. Uh, We believe that women were supported and in many respects represented by the most important male figure in their lives, their father first, perhaps uncles, brothers, uh, later a husband, Uh, maybe their oldest male child, and that they had a kind of a trust relationship with these men. These men controlled the the descent of property. Uh, They had uh, considerable control over lands and inheritances. And we felt that they represented the family, that the woman was, as it were, represented in the man's participation in public life. And, And we felt that women were delicate, unlikely to be rigorously educated in, in, in political theory, unlikely to know classical languages, and that they were best suited for domestic life, for the nursery, for the bearing and raising of children, for managing household accounts, managing the, the kitchen and, and, and the food supply, and that this was a differentiation of labor that was divinely inspired, that the creator made men and women different physically to perform different functions in the world. So we felt that we were actually conforming to nature, not setting some sort of arbitrary patriarchal view of the status of women. And and therefore, we did not regard women as full citizens. We regarded them as auxiliary uh, to the men uh, who were closest to them in life. So I'm afraid that women who are listening to this today in my time and men would find great fault with that position. I think often of a, a woman you knew fairly well, Abigail Adams. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, sir, but a, a president closer to my time by the name of Truman said that Abigail would have made a far better president than her husband. Well, that may be true. I had great admiration for Mrs. Adams. She was a bright woman, steady, reliable, less um, given to outbursts, and uh, fits of self-pity than her husband. She steadied him 
in some important respects. We would have felt it uh, chimerical, um, impossible to consider that she would be the president of the United States. But if from the distaff side, she was able to bring good sense and wisdom to her sometimes erratic husband, we all benefited from that. I, I had great respect for Mrs. Adams, and I knew that she was a formidable intellectual figure in her own right. Sir, we are a nation of immigrants. Most people acknowledge that that is our great strength as a nation. And it, it just seems difficult, even to this day, that there are groups, including women, who are not considered equal and allowed to fully participate in the governing of our nation. Well, look at it this way. Uh, when I proposed universal white manhood suffrage in the 1780s in Virginia and the United States, that was regarded as a wildly radical position. Uh, we knew that in the long run, the, the franchise would expand. Eventually, as you know, it, it included um, free black men, uh, later women, later uh, sovereign American Indians, uh, later, the voting age dropped to 18. So in the course of American history, the franchise has widened, not steadily, but in spasms of progressive thought. Some of this would have been unthinkable in my time, and frankly, I would have opposed it in my time. But the genius of America is that it's the most dynamic society on earth and that things change and that over time, you reconsider the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, reconsider the meaning of the Constitution. And I congratulate you for it. I might not wish to live in your world. I was pretty comfortable in my own, but I see the genius of the American people and I certainly don't oppose it. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, citizen. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we are so pleased to have the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, joined by Lindsay Chervinsky. And we are happy to welcome you back, Lindsay, for this continuation of 10 things you probably didn't know about historical figures. And this week, it's about Abigail Adams, and there's so much to talk about. I want to get right into it. But before the two of you start, for people who don't know a lot about Abigail, can you give us maybe like a little biography about her? Sure. So Abigail Adams was the wife of John Adams. She was born to a uh, well-established family in Massachusetts as well. She came from a line of ministers, not unlike John Adams. They met when she was in her late teens, had a fairly lengthy courtship, married, and they had a truly remarkable marriage and relationship, I think, by any standards, but especially, I think, by 18th century standards. She uh, was mother to many children, including many that survived to adulthood, including John Quincy Adams. So she was not only the wife of a president, she was the mother of a president. And she is perhaps best known for penning the letter that says, remember the ladies, which we will absolutely discuss. 
He's one year younger than Thomas Jefferson, born in 1744, and she lived till 1818. And in the letter that Jefferson wrote of condolence to John Adams, one of the most beautiful letters that Jefferson ever wrote, uh, he said essentially that silence and time are the only cures or the only response to a loss of that magnitude. And so if ever a person had a mate, a soulmate, a helpmate plus a soulmate, in some sense, co-president of the United States, wife of one, mother of another, uh, it was Abigail Smith, who later became Abigail Adams. Let's start with the list. Number one, Abigail wore the financial pants in the family. When John left home to serve in Congress or abroad, he left Abigail to manage the finances. She was far more savvy and willing to take risks, which paid off. I wanted to start with this particular fact because it wasn't just that she was a partner or took over things when he was out of town. He basically ceded the financial management of their estate to her permanently. And it was because she was really good at it. Uh, Woody Holton has wrote a book about a biography of Abigail uh, some years ago. I think it won the Bancroft Prize. And um, it really goes into her creativity with finances at a time when there was war and shortages and it was difficult to come by certain goods. She figured out how to make ends meet. She figured out how to sort of craft a side business she would ask John to send things over in diplomatic pouches and then resell them, which maybe isn't totally above board, but she was very creative. And I love that about her because it, it really shows her strength in her own right, not just as a supplement to his. They were separated for long, long periods of time, you know, for years at one point while he was in Europe. And of course, they wrote letters to each other, but the mails were very slow and uncertain, and it was extremely dangerous. Adams's ship was attacked as he went across the Atlantic Ocean, and he, he got into it in the way that only John Adams could in defending that ship. And she was really, you know, she wasn't abandoned, but she was effectively alone for years, running a farm, raising children, uh, trying to hold things together under almost impossible circumstances in the Bay State where the revolution had begun, um, you know, the, her extraordinary financial capacity. Abigail Adams did not allow the traditional boundaries of gender or of women's roles or of women's deference to get in the way of doing the right thing. She was, she was quietly unwilling to conform to those standards, wouldn't you say? I would, and I, you bring up two excellent points. The first is that there were these standards about gender expectations, and she had a very good understanding of what they were and knew how to get around them. So when John left, she had someone appointed power of attorney, a man, because that was how the legal system worked, but who would do her bidding. So she was completely in control of any legal decisions. The second piece that you mentioned was sort of the difference between the North and the South. And part of the reason she is pretty remarkable compared to some of the other Virginian first ladies that came later is that she had a pretty robust classic education. So she was taught some of the classics that John was taught. I mean, her spelling was absolutely terrible, so that never really improved. But she was reading texts that a lot of Virginian women weren't necessarily having access to. And because she was able to read those things, to go to school, to then have education in her own home, 
Not only did that help her when John was not there and she had to raise her own children, but it meant that she could go toe to toe with him in these references when they're writing letters back and forth. She knew exactly what he was saying and could give just as good as she got. And John Adams deserves some credit for being good with that. In other words, some men, and Jefferson, I think, is one of them, that would have turned the subject away from Cicero or political thought because he would have thought that that was a little too much burden for the the tenderness of ladies. Uh, John Adams did not have any of that squeamishness. He was like, bring it. Let's have this conversation. You're my most trusted advisor. You, You are as intellectually rigorous as I am and a better judge of human character than I am. And so the fact that John was open to a strong, independent, um, forceful, articulate, free-thinking woman is something you probably would not have found in Jefferson's Virginia. That's true. And you still sometimes don't find it in all men today, um, if I may say so. Um, uh, There's actually a, a Jane Austen quote, which I don't usually bring into our podcast, but It says, men of sense do not want silly wives. And I think John Adams took that concept and embraced it heartily and recognized what an asset she was to him. We have so much to get through. I hesitate to ask a question, but I have to. This first point that you make, Lindsay, she was willing to take risks, which paid off. Can you give us any example? Absolutely. So she was fully engaged in speculation during the Revolutionary War and the Confederation period, something that John really was not super comfortable with. So one of the issues that we often talk about when we're thinking about the Confederation period and then the new federal government is the concept of bonds. And these bonds were given to initial uh, lenders or veterans during the revolution. And then they started to depreciate in value as people lost confidence in the Confederation Congress's ability to pay off those debts. So people with excess wealth bought up those bonds at a reduced price, hoping and expecting that at some point the government would pay them back and they would make a profit. And she participated in that process, which some people had real moral objections to because they felt like it was wrong and the people who had originally been given those bonds should reap the benefit. And she had no such moral compunction and was very happy to try and make a profit. One last point about what you said, Lindsay, you you made this sort of side remark that men's condescension towards intelligent women is not entirely vanished from the world. Have you as a young uh, woman scholar faced um, condescension patronizing attitudes from men? Oh, yes. Um, I think I think partly my age has something to do with it. I did get a fairly epic response. Actually, I think it might have been in response to one of our conversations where An older gentleman wrote and said, surely you know that this is a republic, not a democracy. If you're not familiar with that history, I'd be happy to summarize it for you. (laughs) (laughs) It honestly, it was so it was so epic. (laughs) Well, don't say democracy. We are a republic. And you think, can we get over that? That's just like a 1952 a smart Alex sentence to anyone who's talking about American democracy. I'm going to intervene so we can stay on task here. Uh, number two, the remember the ladies letter. And I'm sure you both have lots to say about that. All men would be tyrants if they could. Well, just let me riff on, on this for one moment. She's playing a wonderful game here. It's a very serious letter, but she's also using the phrase, 
all men would be tyrants in its kind of historical universal sense. In other words, men as generic for humanity. And she's then punning on that, not just humankind, but males. And so she's playing this wonderful game on the intersection of the two meanings of men. This shows the wit, Lindsay, that's at the center of this letter. Yeah, this letter is so important because it's really, it comes at a time when the Congress is crafting the Declaration of Independence and John is writing back to her, letting her know that this is happening. And she says, remember the ladies. And then she goes on to talk about sort of the tyranny that we're talking about. And it wasn't just about voting rights, which is often how this letter is interpreted today, but it was about a legal place in the system. At the time, there was a thing called coverture which meant that a married woman um, or a, uh, a woman who was not yet an adult was either covered by her husband or covered by her father. And so could not own property in her own name. Widows are sort of the one exception to this. Could not take credit in her own name, things like that. And that led to a lot of sort of understandable property abuse in that for example, if a woman came into a marriage with a certain amount of money and her husband had a gambling problem, he had access to all of those funds. And so she's talking about a lot of different elements of tyranny in this letter. And, and I have no doubt that John knew exactly what she was talking about, but he sort of is, this is one area where he's sort of reluctant to engage it. And his response, he kind of has this sort of uh, you know, fun little pun back about how, you know, women, women's wiles can control men too. And he's basically just skirting the subject and trying to avoid it. So let me read just a section of, of her letter to him. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Pretty serious stuff, I would say, Lindsay. Yeah, she doesn't hold back. I love her honesty and her intensity. Now, of course, a lot of that stuff didn't come to fruition for a while, but it's a long while, but it is a, um, there's a reason this, this letter has continued to be such an important part of our national story. And it's because it's really powerful. Very good. We need to take a short break. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour and our conversation this week, 10 things you probably didn't know about Abigail Adams with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special contributor, Lindsay Chervinsky. Lindsay, you just listened to uh, Clay read Abigail's letter. Uh, Do you know how John responded to this? Yes, his response is... um, he recognizes the power of her arguments and rather than engage them on their merit, he sort of turns it into a little bit of a joke. And he says, depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Although they are in full force, you know, they are little more than theory. We dare not exert our power in its full latitude. We are obliged to go fair and softly. And in practice, you know, we are the subjects. We have only the name of masters, and rather than give up this, which would completely subject us to the despotism of the petticoat, I hope General Washington and all our brave heroes would fight. Very good. Let's move on to point number oh, well, three. Well, wait, just one more minute. At the beginning of that letter, which comes a couple of weeks later, hers, I think, was March 31st, 1776. His is April 14th. He starts badly, Lindsay. He says, as to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. Yeah, it, it's it's not. It, yeah, it doesn't take it. You can kind of imagine if that conversation was happening in person, he would maybe get a little punch in the arm, <laughs> or 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 worse. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> All right, then let's move on to number three, which is Abigail's complex views on slavery and race. She both opposed slavery as an institution, but hired enslaved people from their owners to work in her home in Philadelphia and in Washington. She often expressed very negative views of African-Americans, but then insisted that a local school offer education to her servant, James. Lindsay, you have a story about that. Yeah, so I love this. I love this particular story because I think it shows the nuance of ideas about racial thinking and slavery, especially in a place like New England. So James was a young black man that worked in the Adams house and Abigail wanted to send him to the local school to ensure that he could read and write. And a lot of the other parents in the area objected to his presence in the classroom. And so the teacher told her that James couldn't come anymore. And she went toe to toe and insisted that James be allowed to learn in the same classroom, insisted that he be given the same opportunity which is a remarkably modern concept for someone in this is during Adam's presidency. So what I think is so remarkable about the story is she believes in equal opportunity for education for this young man. And he is paid just like any other servant in their household. And and to be sure, John and Abigail never owned anyone. And yet when they went to Philadelphia, first New York and then Philadelphia and then Washington, D.C., they would often hire out or basically rent enslaved individuals from local families. The payment, of course, went to the owner, not to the person doing the labor. And she would often complain about their laziness and their inability to work. And what I think that actually gets at is she abhorred slavery as a political institution because of its power dynamics. But she also felt that it corrupted both the people that were held in bondage. They're, they had no reason to want to work efficiently because they were not earning their own wages. And it, of course, corrupted the people 
that did the owning because it put them in a brutish system. So it really reveals the complexities of race and slavery and how even someone like John and Abigail, who never owned anyone, nonetheless, their lives were interwoven with these aspects of slavery in ways that they couldn't really escape. Clay, did, did this position of Abigail's ever come head to head with Jefferson? And how did that work out? Uh, no. Jefferson was a formidable personality in that it became clear to anyone who knew him that there were certain dis discussions you could not have with him. You could not try to pin him down on the hypocrisy of his life, uh, the inconsistency and in having said all men are created equal, and then buying and selling human beings, that this was, a, this was a taboo subject. And everyone around Jefferson, Lindsay, seems to have been willing to defer to, to, to first of all, to ascribe goodwill to him and to believe that he was a very reluctant slaveholder and would do the right thing if he could only figure out what the right thing was. And people were a little scared of bringing these sorts of questions up to Thomas Jefferson. But he did agree with Abigail's position, as Lindsay just described it. You know, He said in his famous passage in Notes on Virginia, the manners and morals of, 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 of both races are depraved by this situation. And he said, the man must be a prodigy whose manners and morals are not degraded by any connection with slavery. The other thing that really strikes me, and I have to, I want to ask Lindsay this question, you know, at the Constitutional Convention, I've been teaching an online course on it, many of the Northerners objected to slavery, but their objection wasn't really a deep compassion for the human beings who were enslaved. It was more about proportionality of representation and taxation. It was about the South's holding the North hostage on this question. In other words, they, they complained bitterly about slavery, but it wasn't really about the individuals who were suffering under it. It was more of political gamesmanship. Now, only Governor Morris, of all the people at the Constitutional Convention, gave an impassioned speech saying, this is just wrong. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's so important to, one of the reasons I distinguished her objection as a political concept was because there was a deep embedded racism in this society at the time. There was, there were people who believed that uh, Black Americans could be equal to white Americans, but they were fewer in number than we would like. And so most of the objections to slavery and to people owning other people were political, just like you said. It was an objection that these individuals would provide more um, heft to Southern states in representation that they would be held hostage. And indeed, they were, you know, Northern concerns about this were correct. Southern states did gain tremendously because of that population. So it is really important to distinguish that even those who were objecting to it for political reasons didn't necessarily oppose it in, in a personal way, or even if they did, it doesn't mean they didn't benefit from it. So for example, every time John and Abigail went to the president's house for a social event, which was up to three times per week, their coats were probably taken by an enslaved valet. The food was prepared by enslaved chefs. Their carriages and horses were tended to by enslaved stable hands. And that was a part of their daily life. And from what I can tell, they didn't object a whole lot to it. I want to move on to number four, Abigail's experience during the Revolutionary War. Isn't there a very famous letter that she wrote? She was on, went up with her family to watch the bombardment. I think it was Boston, right? Yeah, she goes, uh, from the very beginning of the war, she's 
alone most of the time with a house full of young children. And one of the most famous scenes is she takes a young John Quincy Adams, who I think is seven or eight at the time, up to the nearby hill to see the Battle of Bunker Hill. And I mean, one, how insane that John Quincy Adams' life basically, you know, spans from seeing the Battle of Bunker Hill to almost the lead up to the Civil War. I mean, talk about a remarkable life, but um, takes them to see this fighting. And as the soldiers, you know, continue to move and go past, she always has a real fear that her house might not be safe. She has a fear that her children might not be safe. And she is responsible for all of this. She's also, during this time, concerned about a smallpox outbreak. So she has to decide whether or not to inoculate her children. And John isn't there, so she has to make the decision herself. When we think about, we've lived through a moment of crisis for the last two years, almost two years here. And those two years have felt very intense and very heavy. Imagine it for eight years. And correspondence is slow, as Clay said, and she's often by herself, and it's just remarkable. And you can see her in this period. So there's the Remember the Ladies letter, and it's very important historically, and it's it's very much uh, privileged as a letter by Abigail Adams. Her second way of, of, uh, of being a strong woman was that she was chafing to do something, to help. I mean, here we are. I mean, okay, I'm running the farm and raising the children and, you know, getting them inoculated and managing the affairs, but she wanted to be out there doing something. Is there a role for women in the revolution? Can can we contribute? Can we be knitting? Can we have coffee parties to stir up um, support? Is there a way we can gather materials that can be sent to the front? And by taking her children to the front of a battle scene, this was a very bloody battle. The British got the worst of it at Bunker Hill to observe, undoubtedly from a safe distance, but still, this is sort of a woman who's feeling like, if I weren't trapped in the gender construction of, of my life, if I had the capacity to fight for this country, I mean, in some ways, she's a more ardent patriot than her husband. Her husband is lost in constitutional thinking and Cicero and Plutarch and Polybius and Montesquieu. She's like, we're going to win this damn war. She certainly has the more sort of typical revolutionary experience than he does because she sees these battles. She... There's a scene in the John Adams miniseries where they melt down the little toy soldiers. They did melt things down to create bullets to contribute to the cause. She's right there every step of the way. And while him leaving was a sacrifice for her, she did feel like that sacrifice was contributing to the cause. Moving on to number five, you you say in your notes, Lindsay, that Abigail was a pretty intense mother with high expectations. You talk about how she rejected suitors and what mother-in-law thinks that their their children's spouse is good enough for them. That's not really unique. Uh, but that she was probably a, a very intimidating mother-in-law. And she was looking out for her kids, but maybe over the top. Yeah, let me start on this one because, you know, there's so much kind of blind praise for Abigail Adams that we have to remember that it's not all good news. She wrote to John Quincy a letter in which she said, and I'm paraphrasing only slightly, with the advantages that you have had in birth and education, and with a father like yours, a scholar and a historian of the history of law, if you do not do something pretty remarkable with your life, it would be better that you had never been born. <laughs> right, Lindsay? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, so... 
Um, Did you get any letters like that from your parents? <laughs> uh, no, I think that they they know that I uh, put a, put enough pressure on myself, which John Quincy Adams did too. So I think, you know, part of it was they came from a Puritan background and still sort of had a huge element of that culture embedded deeply in them. They believed in constant self-reflection and self-improvement. Adams, John Adams is constantly writing about his own failures and his attempts to try and improve his character flaws. So this was a part of the rhetoric and the family discourse, which meant that John Quincy Adams very much knew what his own failures were and was constantly aware of them. And yet his mother still needed to remind him from time to time. Um, There was also a sense that, you know, their family would reflect on John Adams and his political legacy. So there was a lot of pressure there to not um, be appearing to benefit from nepotism or to be letting down the family legacy. And this extended, as I mentioned in my initial note, to the potential in-laws, um, Abby Nabby, who was Abigail and Abigail's daughter, um, had found uh, a suitor that she was quite fond of. And Abigail and John basically said no. And instead, she married someone who turned out to be a very terrible husband. Uh, similarly, John Quincy was had a, a woman that he was quite interested in marrying, and they said no. They vetoed, um, they vetoed it. They, they, they didn't vetoed just it. discourage it. They vetoed yeah. it. Oh, they hardcore veto spouses. And so John Quincy Adams really had the best way, which was that he went abroad to Europe as a minister on behalf of the United States and just married someone in Europe before they could really get their hands into it. So it was, um, <laughs> and, and Abigail was not happy about it because it was a woman who had grown up in England and was she a loyal enough American? And was that going to be questionable? But th- th- All of that that kind of behavior amongst parents wasn't really unique f- uh, during that time. No, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't. It was very common for parents to, you know, constantly be providing perhaps unsolicited advice in their correspondence. Some things never change. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. I think that they just had a special knack for making it point. They did. And, and and I Jefferson was quite hard on his daughters and wrote them these awful letters saying, if you want my love, you will learn to read Latin. And if you want, you know, he did a lot of that. And so I, 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 point well taken that the Adams were not unique in this. But Abigail was a very, very formidable person. John Quincy's dream was to be a poet. He loved the belletre. He actually eventually wrote uh, several volumes on um, criticism of poetry when he was a temporarily a professor at Harvard, and that was one of the that was the gift that John Adams sent to Jefferson as they began the renewal of their famous correspondence in 1812. He wanted to be a poet, John Quincy, and his and his parents said absolutely not. You know, you are destined to be a statesman, and he was, and a great one. And he eventually married Louisa, this woman that he found while in Europe, where his mother and his particularly his mother, but his parents couldn't veto it. And she was, Louisa was scared to death of Abigail Adams. And John Adams saw this. He saw this dynamic of how Abigail was really kind of mistreating John Quincy's wife, Louisa. And John stepped in and became a kind of a paternal protector of Louisa. They had a lovely relationship. And Louisa was very deeply grateful that John Adams was sort of a an intermediary between herself and her her mother-in-law. So whatever we say that is great about Abigail Adams, when she was in a bad mood, 
she made you pay. Yeah, absolutely. I should say she was, you know, when her children, if they had a crisis, she was the type of mother you would want there in a crisis. She would step in and take care of things. She lent the money. She took care of their health. She, you know, welcomed their children to her home. So she did have lovely qualities. But what I hear from both of you is that Abigail Adams had a, a real intense effect on the people around her, those she had relationships with, which leads us into number six and her influence on John Adams. In your notes, Lindsay, you say that critics of, of John Adams accused him of consulting with the cabinet of one. Where does that come from? So during the 1796 and 1800 election, uh, a lot of the criticism of John was that he was too much governed by his wife, that he wasn't man enough to stand up to his wife and that he only consulted with her and didn't consult with other people. And especially in 1800, he didn't consult with his cabinet secretaries who were, you know, proper Federalists and instead took the advice of a woman, which was intended to emasculate him and make him seem effeminate. The problem was that, um, A, most of the time she probably was a better advisor than some of these other people. And B, uh, they were right. He did prefer her advice to pretty much anyone else. So it's some of the most accurate and honest criticism that has probably ever been offered in a presidential election. His actual cabinet was terrible. His cabinet was one of the worst and most disloyal cabinets in American history. They were all holdovers from Washington. One of the fundamental mistakes that Adams made, although, as Lindsay has said previously, no one was quite sure what you do with an existing cabinet. Maybe you maybe you keep them on. Uh, that what you know the protocols of these things had not yet been developed, but they betrayed him at every turn. And secondly, I wish that he had listened to Abigail Adams more. Uh, she would have made him a better president if if he had just followed her advice. And then finally, the big thing about Adams was that he kept going back to Braintree. He was gone from the seat of government for very long periods of time, and because he wasn't available. The people in the House and the Senate and the cabinet were like, where's the president? And then that led them to think, well, he's this soft guy who needs to be at home with his wife and he's listening too much to her. His absenteeism was a real problem, Lindsay. Said like a true Jeffersonian. Uh, you you brought up something important, Clay, uh, talking about the cabinet. No one had ever done this before, which of course leads me to talk about Lindsay's book, The Cabinet. We do need to take a short break. When we come back, I promise I'm going to ask you about your book, Lindsay, so our listeners know, and also how they can follow your work, because I sure do, and I enjoy it very much. So we'll be back with that in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. We're doing our uh, 10 Things series, where we're looking at 10 things about individuals of the, of the early national period uh, that might illuminate something about them, that kind of catch our eye when we think about them. Today, we're talking about the great Abigail Adams. And before we went to break, Lindsay, I can't believe that you called me a true Jeffersonian, and the and and the people can't see it because we're on Zoom. But the, the sneery way you said it, like, "Oh my goodness, you're just you oh spoken like a true Jeffersonian," as if that's some sort of a toxic thing. Uh, yes, Jefferson took his vacations, but largely in August and September because he said Washington D.C. was malarial and that no rational person would stay there. And then he went once in the spring, but he felt that he was at home way, way, way too seldom. Wasn't Adams at one point? in Quincy for like eight months as president? Yeah. So, okay. So the thing is, is this. Jefferson was half right, but a lot of what we remember about Adams' presidency and Adams' sort of life as a politician is shaped by how Jefferson has written the history. And we all know that Jefferson often writes things how best suit his needs. So it's important to take that with a grain of salt. Yes, or a bucket of salt, as the case may be. Um, so yes, absolutely. Adams was gone way more than Jefferson. Adams was gone way more than Washington. Now, there was a post that was going, they had a post writer that went every single day from uh, Philadelphia to Quincy and Quincy back to Philadelphia. So that it wasn't like they weren't in contact. And had he had a loyal cabinet, I think it probably wouldn't have been a problem problem was he did not realize, A, how disloyal they were, or B, the sort of really intimate management that the interpersonal relations in the cabinet required, which was something that Jefferson learned from his time in Washington's administration and then used to such great effect during his presidency. We need to continue to move along here. We have four points to get to in this last segment of the show, but before we do, I, I do want to talk about your book, at least let people know what it is. It's called The Cabinet, and it, it's a great read. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, when we talk about Adams not knowing what to do, The Cabinet was a new thing. That immediately made me think about your book. And also, if people want to follow your work, can you just quickly tell them how they can do that? Absolutely. So I am on social media at LM Chervinsky on most of the channels. And then sort of the best way to stay on top of all of it is to subscribe to my newsletter, which is at lindsaychervinsky.substack.com. I send out a monthly essay, but it also has links to all of my other stuff, all the other podcasts and essays and op-eds that I write. So it is the best place in one spot to stay on top of everything. A difference between letters of their time and blogs is you can't burn blogs. So they'll be there forever. <laughs> but that's point number seven. Abigail asked John to burn their letters after she died. This wasn't uncommon. Jefferson did it, I, I believe. You asked the question, how does his preservation of their letters shape the historical memory? I'll begin with just a word. If you only get to choose a handful of documents from the early national period, if you say the top 10, of course, Jefferson's letters are going to be there and uh, Hamilton's state papers during his period as the Secretary of Treasury, some of Washington's correspondence, et cetera. But in the top five document um, tranches of the early national period are the letters between John and Abigail Adams. They each wrote separately to other people and they wrote uh, a massive number of letters to each other. and. This humanizes the revolution. 
It brings enormous humor and wit into the story. Uh, it reminds us that women were not those soft things that Jefferson was talking about, certainly not in every state or every occasion. Um, it gives you a glimpse into a real family. And I think, Lindsay, one of the reasons why Adams is on the way up in national memory as Jefferson goes down is that Adams is real and authentic. And their letters are letters you can kind of see between a spirited husband and a spirited wife, whereas Jefferson's letters to women are all mannerist, as if he were writing in a Jane Austen novel. And so they don't have the same sense of authenticity. I think that's right. Um, as David said, it was very common for people to burn letters, not unlike, you know, we delete emails and forget that there's usually a record of them somewhere. But I understand why people burned letters. There's a lot of correspondence that I'd probably rather not see the light of day. And everyone has that same experience. So that was one of the reasons Martha burned her correspondence with George Washington. And some people did so selectively. So to be sure, Adam's descendants called some of the papers. I have no doubt that there was some trimming here and there. But the fact that Abigail asked him to burn their letters and he didn't, I think you're right. The very best thing that comes from that is we get to see the full kaleidoscope of color in their personality in a way that we don't see with George Washington. It's one of the reasons he feels sometimes so cold and aloof is because his very closest relationship is inaccessible to us. And so personally, from a historian, going from writing that experience, which I enjoyed greatly, to being able to write about the Adams, where their correspondence is so full of color, is great fun. It's just a joy to be able to participate in their snark and their wittiness and their love and their self-doubt. It's just delightful. We should say that we're talking about uh, historical figures burning letters between spouses. Certainly Jefferson and all of the founders had had great care in, in leaving their legacy. But when it came to personal relationships, that was something. In that correspondence between John and Abigail, there are occasional glimpses of deep flirtatiousness, and their their marriage was uh, was was passionate. Oh yeah, no, I mean they had a true love match, and it remained a love match until the day she died. And so, you know, they're not above making sex jokes, and it's very funny. Um, you know, they're you kind of have to understand 18th century language to totally pick up on it. But no, they were not. They were not prudish. They were not puritanical. They had a very warm and loving relationship. There's one David where he's, I think, in England, and he writes to her, and he says, uh, I love you madly and always have, uh, et cetera. And he says, and if I were at hand, I would be able to prove it to you. And when I read that, I sort of get into an 18th century blush because that's pretty explicit stuff for the 18th century. I want to move on to number eight. And I, I, Clay, I want you to respond to this. Lindsay says... Abigail was one of the few women Jefferson actually liked. How do we know that? What a horrible thing to say, for one thing. You know, I'm going <laughs> to respond as she did to the question about Hamilton and Talleyrand. Nonsense. First of all, he did like Abigail Adams, of course, uh, but he also feared Abigail Adams, and he had good reason to. He liked lots of women, but his, but his, his letters to women are, I have to say, they're patriarchal. They're the letters of a strong man flirting in a kind of socially acceptable way with these women that he liked in Europe. And yeah, a, come here, come here, come here, go away, go away, go away, come here, come here, well, come not, here go not, away, not, go not, away. Not, not quite that, but just 
there's a certain kind of patriarchal detachment in Jefferson. He adopts this kind of lightly flirtatious tone with these women, and he, he clearly likes them, but I think Jefferson keeps women at arm's length, including, I think, even his own wife, Martha. Abigail, you can't keep at arm's length, and he did admire her, and he saw what an extraordinary woman she was. I want Lindsay to talk about this, but I hope we come back to the exchange between Abigail and Jefferson in 1804 when she read him the Riot Act. Don't you think, though, just to push back on that a little bit, that without applying 21st century morals to the 18th century, because that's really not totally possible, that on the scope of sort of misogynistic views, Jefferson was more extreme than some. And especially for, it was one thing for Parisian women to be smart and educated and participate in salons, but he wanted American women to be a certain way. And so it is fairly remarkable that he and Abigail had this close, very kind relationship, given that she sort of embodied a lot of the things he didn't actually want American women to be. Abigail, to me, is one of those people who um, you want as a friend, but the Lord help you if she's your enemy. And and you talk about that in point number nine, that Abigail was far more supportive than John Adams of the Alien and Sedition Acts. She was looking out for her husband. I don't care whether it's right or wrong. I'm looking out for John. Is that is that fair? That's right. She was a sort of fiercely loyal wife, friend, mother. As you said, she you did not want her on your bad side. And I think a, a little bit of context here is quite important because in the late 1790s, there weren't really any libel laws. There weren't any requirements about what people could print. There wasn't a rule saying you couldn't, you know, shout fire in a, in a crowded theater. And so newspapers just printed vitriol. I mean, and lies and complete garbage. Worse than now. Worse than now. Even worse than now. Yes. And there were rumors that arson and political violence was going to spread through Philadelphia nearly every day. At one point, one of her maids found a threat to kill all Federalist leaders on a piece of paper that had been dropped in the alleyway behind their house. And so she deeply feared political violence and deeply feared that the language that was taking place in these editorials was going to spark that political violence, which, you know, are concerns that I think we perhaps understand better now than we may have 10 years ago because we have experienced political violence and the power of language to incite it. So with that context, it's understandable why she wanted there to be some sedition control to try and limit that ill. The Alien Act part, not so much. That was really politically motivated. And the idea was that immigrants tended to support Democratic Republicans. And so they were supporting the, you know, political opponents of her husband. And so it was very happy to reduce their civil liberties. It was a different time. Then again, uh, in 1801, Abigail wrote to her son, John Quincy, Quote, the spirit of party has overpowered the spirit of patriotism. So some things never change, I guess. Yeah, yes, yes and no. I think that's a really good quotation. You know, she's fiercely loyal to her husband and very thin-skinned about attacks on her husband, which is why she could never really forgive Jefferson for paying Calendar to write dirt about Adams and the Adams administration. But she also felt more than her husband 
that there was a rabble out there that was what was that was threatening the American experiment because she believed in classical virtue with a capital V and that a a high-minded virtuous man like her husband should be given a great deal of deference even when people didn't quite understand what he was up to they should they should believe that he was a patriot that he had the best interests of this country in mind and that to criticize him without knowing all the facts was the beginning of chaos and pandemonium in the American experiment and so she was offended to think that the, the the great unwashed out there could be making scurrilous attacks on his administration or on any administration in the country. And so, Lindsay, I think that for her, it, it, it means it's not just protection of her husband. It's really protection of the, the thing her husband gave his life to trying to create. And she felt that she had given many decades of her life as well. So it was, a, you know, while she was concerned about the attacks on him, it was... There were attacks on their shared project, and I think you're right to emphasize that. And then finally, we come to point number 10, which is her legacy as a first lady. And Clay, you've mentioned a couple of letters of hers that really stand out to you. Maybe maybe that's her legacy, or at least part of it. But they lived in the White House for a few months. She wrote some kind of famous letters about how drafty it was, and they had to keep all the fireplaces going, and she was hanging her laundry, and she longed to go home to Massachusetts, and she really didn't like Washington, partly because of all the, the Black enslaved people who were there, and she saw them as wretches, as, as, as downtrodden. The whole social milieu of the Potomac uh, area with the new District of Columbia was, in her mind, corrupted by enslavement and by the... the buying and selling of human beings on street corners and so on. So she didn't have a good time. And so her legacy as first lady is really a legacy from afar, from Massachusetts, more than in the White House per se. But how would you assess that, Lindsay? I think you're right. She did spend more time in Philadelphia, but her health wasn't great. She was very susceptible to seasonal disorders. So places like Philadelphia, where yellow fever was a real concern, were, I mean, John really didn't want her to risk herself in that way. You're right. She wasn't particularly as present. And so she's often forgotten, especially because she comes in between Martha Washington and then Dolly Madison. And Martha Washington is sort of the grandmotherly, you know, dowdy uh, mother of the nation. Although I don't think that's an accurate description. And then, you know, Dolly Madison, who was this incredible hostess and very uh, flamboyant, intentionally so, and, and an asset to, to James Madison in that particular way. And so she's forgotten. But I actually think that her legacy is one in that we see that the first lady can be a real partner and can be a real asset. And so in some ways, she sets the mo- the mode or, or sets a model for how first ladies can become later in U.S. history. And let me look at it this way for a moment and to use recent history. Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were clearly um, deeply involved with each other on every policy question. She was not um, saying, I'll handle the family, you handle public life. They were partners in the presidency and in a really, really extraordinary way. You think of Donald Trump and Melania. No, we don't have that vibe there. Or John Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy. We don't get that vibe there. Or Lady Bird Johnson and Lyndon. So, so some first ladies like Mrs. Clinton, like Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, like Mrs. Wilson, uh, like Abigail Adams, play a fundamental role in their husband's 
success and others like Jacqueline Kennedy or Melania do their work and they do it well, but it's a different kind of thing. It's a it's a separate category. It's not deep into the policy questions and the pillow talk is probably not what, what should we do about the red line in Syria? Whereas Michelle Obama was there at every stage and you just get the sense that John Adams number one advisor in life was to turn to his extraordinary wife, Abigail. This has been really great. You know, I, if, if time travel were possible and I could go back to that period of history and, and, and pick people to meet, Abigail Adams would be pretty high on my list. We, we're out of time, but I want to ask the both of you, for our listeners, if, if they want to learn more about Abigail Adams, do you have any recommended reading? So there's the Abigail Adams biography by Woody Holton, which is fantastic and um, a real page turner. If you're interested in reading some of their letters or reading more about her life, the Massachusetts Historical Society holds all of the Adams family papers and is just a treasure trove of documents and stories, and they're really wonderful. And the name of that author again is? Woody Holton. And David, I would say... This is true of them in a way it's not true of other figures that are there. Just dive into their letters. Any edition of the letters, well, you don't need a lot of footnotes. They just speak to you and you will get excited and then you'll seek out biographies of both of them. Thank you, Lindsay. We've got to plan our next one. Looking forward to it. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>